When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Origin Story. In each episode, we take a word, idea or figure from history, explain its origins and talk about how it influences political discourse today. I'm Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth. And my name is Ian Dunt. I'm a columnist with the Our newspaper and I'm the author of How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't. This week, we're starting a two-parter on eugenics. Uh, this has been on the shortlist since season one because it's so fascinating and complicated. Uh, the word is instantly discrediting these days because associated with cranks and villains from skull measuring Victorians to Nazis conducting horrific experiments. At the same time, you've got numerous eminent figures from the early 20th century across the political spectrum, including former origin story stars who were interested in it at some point. So it's a story of bad science and bad politics. And yet lots of people thought that it was a force for good. And I wanted to know why. What about you? Well, I had to do it because you you wanted to. You wanted to do it. <laughs> Come on, man. This is like, this is peak origin story. It's a journey into the dark heart of man and therefore very much the kind of thing that I'm used to. It sounds like a word from the sort of shameful past, but actually it kind of isn't, right? So, I mean, not so long ago, Dominic Cummings was sat in Downing Street as chief of staff, although he claims he wasn't, to the prime minister. Now, he was fascinated by a man called Stephen Sue, uh, who was a former physicist and administrator at Michigan State University, who was dealing with all sorts of things about how super intelligent humans are coming. He was invited to Downing Street. There was a kind of eugenics thinking in the heart of British government. Some of the people brought in by Cummings had similar kind of ideas talking about how we get around the problems of unplanned pregnancies using this kind of legal enforcement of long-term contraceptives. You look over the US, you look at Trump. I mean, Trump told a Minnesota rally in 2020 that they have good genes. <laughs> And uh, we think you're so different to horses, but you're not really. We have good genes in Minnesota, which is just like the most obviously Trumpist batshit thing you can imagine. This stuff has not gone away. It does sort of lurk in the more pernicious elements of our political system now. So one of the themes, I think, will be that it's quite tempting with history to look for your goodies and your baddies. Yes. And to go, well, these guys are, for my politics say, well, these are the kind of progressives and the liberals and the socialists. And they had the good ideas and then the conservatives, reactionaries and fascists, they had the bad ideas. And it, it, this kind of scrambles the matrix there. People into eugenics at certain points include H.G. Wells, George Bernard Shaw, Winston Churchill, and mm. boy John Maynard Keynes, mm. W.B. Du Bois, 
Arthur Balfour, D.H. Lawrence, Aldous Huxley, and John Harvey Kellogg, the serial man about whom I do not have uh, strong feelings. <laughs> um, <laughs> Philippa Levine, in her short introduction to eugenics, writes, at no point was there a single definitive eugenic position or set of definitions on which all could agree. No clear division between adherents of positive and negative eugenics, which we would explain later, or even across political lines, characterizes debates around race, class, or gender. And constantly you are tripping up on sort of your own prejudices yes. and thinking, well, how did this person end up believing in this thing, which in the crudest, most simplistic fashion, you know, led to Nazi compulsory sterilization and euthanasia? Yeah. I honestly, you know what, researching this felt like uh, moral brain training. Like there are certain words that when I come across them in a book, I think, oh, you're you're on my side. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. Words like uh, scientist, atheist, enlightenment, modernist, these words. And yet in this book, overwhelmingly when those words come up, someone's about to do something really fucking dreadful. You know, in yeah. this case, you're just like, oh, no, no. It turns out most of my normal goodies are baddies. And in fact, words like Catholic, which typically when I see it in a book, I'm like, oh, someone's about to do something dreadful. Or usually the guy's stopping it from taking place. Then I think there's like this extra element of moral complexity, which is that, for instance, it, in the case of many Catholic sort of campaigners against eugenics, it's not even that they're doing necessarily a good thing. It's that they're doing a good thing on the basis of really bad thinking, i.e. the same thinking that would lead them to campaign against abortion, you know. Um, and then when people are doing bad things, they sometimes restrain themselves, particularly in the case of scientists, on the basis of their better their better values, their commitment to scientific rigor actually provides a halt on some of the negative behavior. So to go into this, this is not a black and white story. This is a story that is absolutely soaked in different shades of gray. And I think to engage with it properly really helps kind of buttress your defenses mm. against simplistic political thinking. I should say up top that we will be quoting uh, within reason some racist and ableist statements um, because there's no avoiding it. I mean, there was stuff I came across where I'm just like, I'm not saying that. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> You know, well, stuff that actually involves racist slurs. <laughs> right, right. But, but still, yes, we'll be quoting some pretty grim statements. Just imagine that there is a huge racist klaxon, klaxon that is sounding the whole time. Yeah, it's just constantly in the background. The OED says eugenics is the study of the arrangement of human reproduction to increase the population of characteristics regarded as desirable in brackets, or to reduce the proportion regarded as undesirable within a population or the species as a whole. Also, the advocacy for or implementation of policies and practices intended to influence human reproduction in this way. And I think that also is really important because eugenics is both a science and a policy program. And in some countries, it remained just a science, and in other countries, it ended up dictating policy in pretty horrifying ways. First citation, Francis Galton, Inquiries into Human Faculty, 1883. The investigation of human eugenics, that is, of the conditions under which men of a high type are produced. And he coined the word from the Greek for well-born, or literally, good-growing. <laughs> and dysgenic, which came later, uh, means the opposite. So do you think that nails it? basically as both a science and a sociopolitical ideology. Yeah, it's fine. It's good. To me, there's sort of two processes that are going on 
when you look at eugenics, because what it always involves is this kind of forced transmission of biology into politics mm. in a really aggressive form. Mm. And that has two sides to it, right? So one of them is like the biological assessment of existing society. So instead of thinking, oh, there's all sorts of, you know, maybe psychological or familial or educational or mental health reasons why we may have uh, alcoholism or schizophrenia, you instead say society is actually an accurate reflection of our existing biology. You know, that it's not to do with the societal factors. It's not to do with the politics. It's just hereditary principles. That's all that's going on there. If someone's successful, if they're at the top of a business, top of society, it's because they were just a genius, you know, hered in a hereditary well, this basis. Is, well, this is what puzzles me because Stephen Jay Gould, who is uh, probably is one of, the, one of the good guys here mm. in terms of his writing about eugenics and his opposition to nouveau eugenicists. So Gould says the biological essentialism... Mm which is bigger than eugenics, essentially is a way of giving scientific confirmation or pseudoscientific confirmation to power structures as they are. And this sort of came up when we were talking about Jordan Peterson, right? That you 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 say, well, you, you know, it's, it's very conservative. It's like, well, you can't change these things yes. because it's not environmental. It's not political. It's just the way it is and you can't argue with science. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it is weird that you had so many like liberals and socialists embracing something because at its heart, it is fundamentally conservative. I think that's exactly right. And you see that really early on, right? So if you look at like the origin of feminist thought, say, in the Victorian period, you look at stuff like the John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor were saying, it was always about women are not behaving in this way because it is natural to them as a species or as a population, it's because of the oppressive structures around mm. them. So in that kind of radical thought, you always have this idea of we are um, improvable through social and political action. We are changeable. That actually when people are suffering in our society, it's not because of their innate qualities, it's because of oppressive structures. That seems key to left-wing thought to me. And it is flatly, implicitly denied in eugenics. And then the flip side for eugenics is then what it goes on to do so Adam Rutherford, who's, who is a listener to the show, we should say, but also wrote a very good book on this subject. Yeah, I know, which is really nerve-wracking. Well, no, it's more, it's just like, I don't want to talk about it because I know that there are listeners yeah, yeah. of the show. But it's, a, it's the deliberate crafting of a society by biological design. So it's not just the assessment, you know, in the first place. It's also that then you try to use this to start carving society into certain shapes. And surprise, surprise, the people that get it when you do that are people who have different sexuality, who are not the same race as you, who are mentally different to you in some way. These are the, the kind of targets that you get. And that I think won't surprise anyone who has any basic understanding of human history. So can I uh, take you down the road to Galton? Yes. Because this is what an a terrible road this is. This is an example <laughs> where this one guy definitely made up this word. Mm -hmm. But that did not mean that he invented the concept. So the idea that health of a society depends on good breeding goes back to like Plato and Aristotle. In fact, many ancient societies around the world, we're not just talking like Greece and Rome here, practiced infanticide on children born right. with right. deformities. It's the classic Sparta thing of we chuck the child off the... I mean, right. possibly mythical, but nevertheless... Hitler know. was very interested. I in bet you that does not surprise me. Yeah, um, But you, you only get eugenics when, when you got the scaffolding of enlightenment science. Mm, and a lot mm. of the time, what this is, is basically age-old prejudices suddenly given this kind of grounding yeah. in science or, as we discover, pseudoscience. So 
There's an argument that it begins in 1851 with the English polymath Herbert Spencer in his book Social Statics. Oh, interesting. Now, Spencer was a radical liberal opposed to colonialism, war and racism also opposed to public health, welfare, and efforts to save the lives of the unfit. Now, it should be said that when we use words like unfit, deformity here, these are the words of the, the eugenicists, and we can't, like, no, no, we're to get into their minds, that. we can't substitute yeah. every time. We're going to be saying the word feeble-minded a lot right. during this, and you should not come to conclusions about our personal no. views on that basis. Now, he believed in the genetic equivalent of Adam Smith's invisible hand of the market sort of imposed any interventions to save lives. He wrote, the quality of a society is lowered morally and intellectually by the artificial preservation of those who are least able to take care of themselves. Oof. And Elof Axel Carlson, his book, The Unfit, The History of a Bad Idea, argues that what we call social Darwinism, which is what Spencer is generally considered, is actually social Spencerism. Because mm. he had it before before the theory of evolution. Mm -hmm. Around the same time, you've got a conservative French diplomat called Comte de Gobineau, who publishes a book which is not about eugenics, but becomes intertwined with it, called The Inequality of Human Races. And he basically invents scientific racism. What was his name again? Comte de Gobineau. It's a shame because he sounds like a really delicious pudding, <laughs> but is in fact a horrific racial theory. He ranks the races mm. with the Teutons or Aryans at the top. And he thought that the best people were the most racially pure people. Basically sort of the inventor of scientific racism blames race mixing for the decline of past civilizations like fully right. <laughs> not so many shades of gray with with Gobineau. <laughs> so then in 1859 we get the idea of natural selection in darwin's the origin of species social darwinism applies the notion of the survival of the fittest which is a phrase from spencer mm -hmm. not darwin mm -hmm. to human society now, darwin did not initially propose this but he did come to agree with it, which was a little dismaying reading this bit where he suggested that only the pure, vigorous and well-developed should be allowed to have children, perhaps by some system of examinations and licenses. Uh, to the list of people who we typically like who don't come out of this story very well, the first person on that list is Darwin. Yeah. In 1871's The Descent of Man, he writes... We civilised men do our utmost to check the process of elimination. We build asylums for the imbecile, the maimed and the sick. We institute poor laws and our medical men exert their utmost skill to save the life of everyone to their last moment. This sounds like a good thing, Charles, is it? <laughs> no. Thus, the weak members of civilised society propagate their kind. No one who has attended to the breeding of domestic animals will doubt that this must be highly injurious to the race of men. Even vaccines, he thought were bad because they saved the lives of people who would otherwise die. This is why I feel like that that invisible hand comparison really works because it's mm. sort of like, in the same way, let the market do what it does. Here it's like, let nature do what it does. But the logic of that seems to be that you just shouldn't even have doctors, and that anybody who gets sick should just die. Yes, that's right. It, it, well, it's, it's weird, but over and over again, what you see with this is, although it casts itself as modernity and progress, mm. it actually goes backwards. It constantly has these metaphors of humanity as a form of agriculture, as cattle. Yeah. You know, there's a constant sort of thing of like, well, exactly what is this world that you're trying to create all of a sudden? Because, of course, to do most of these things, you're basically trying to negate the level of civilization that you've accomplished. I want to put a qualifier on the on the Darwin bit because he does say something interesting after this stuff. The plans for bettering humanity through eugenics, he says, are, quote, utopian 
and will never be even partially realized until the laws of inheritance are even partially known. Now, that seems like a really small qualifier, right? He's just saying, well, we can't really do anything about this until we get the science. But that strain of thinking then runs through, I think, the British eugenics movement and is one of the reasons that it becomes much more restrained in the things that it does yeah. than, for instance, what we see in the US and in Germany. So now we come to Francis Galton, Darwin's half-cousin. I mean, a fascinating character, independently wealthy, sort of gentleman scientist, very eccentric. <laughs> Did important work in the fields of fingerprinting, synesthesia and meteorology. This is all from Adam Rutherford's book. And invented the dog whistle and apparently the racist dog whistle. <laughs> Did you have that one in your back pocket for several weeks now? I see. He was obsessed with statistics and thought that like everything could be measured scientifically, including concepts like beauty, boredom, and the efficacy of prayer. I just thought everything could be could be measured. And he also coined the phrase nature versus nurture. I would love to read the paper on the statistical efficacy of prayer, by the way. His beauty map is also quite fascinating. (laughs) So he firmly in the nature camp, he thought that everything was hereditary. Um, pioneered studies of twins who had been raised separately to prove, scare quotes, that upbringing was less important than genetic destiny. Now, his primary interest was intelligence. So several years earlier, 1869, hereditary genius. He traced the genealogies of eminent men in order to show that intelligence was in the blood. Now, he was quite the racist. Worse than his version of eugenics... I think was the fact, you know, to his reputation now, is the fact that he was just a massive racist. There's one chapter in Hereditary Genius called The Comparative Worth of Different Races. Mm-hmm. His version of eugenics, so-called positive eugenics, was about encouraging certain people to breed rather than discouraging or prohibiting others, which is called negative eugenics. And he had a rather utopian idea that this would create a greater sense of moral freedom, responsibility and opportunity for everybody. Let's just quickly to line it up, because this positive-negative thing is going to be playing out throughout the story. So if you're thinking positive, and pretty much in every case, what they're thinking of is middle-class people in in the British case. The British case is mostly defined by class rather than race, predominantly. Um, They want middle-class people to have more kids, so they're thinking about sort of pronatal interventions, you know, tax funds, subsidized housing for sort of gifted people. And then the negative eugenics is how do you stop the people who we don't want breeding breeding. And in that case, it's sterilization, contraception, segregation, and ultimately, you know, abortion, euthanasia, the the really bleak end of things. Mm. But it doesn't start that way with him, right? With him, the focus at the beginning is all on the positive side, predominantly. So he starts talking, I mean, some of this stuff, he starts talking about eugenics farms to gather, quote, fine specimens of humanity in the same way that they, quote, procure and maintain fine breeds of cattle. You're like, all right. So you're like an Aryan pimp, basically. (laughs) Yeah, and the cattle, the cattle never go away, and neither does the gardening metaphor. Does positive eugenics inevitably lead to negative eugenics? Dalton didn't think so, but it seems that as soon as you start going, well, we should we should encourage these people to have children. Inevitably, someone's going to go. Shouldn't we discourage those people from having yes. children? It has to degenerate because there must be a basis upon which those are the people that you're encouraging to have children, right? And so if that's the case, then there must be, it naturally follows that these other people should be having fewer children. And you can see that degradation from positive to negative over the course of his life. Like by the time you get right. to his, his old age, by the time you get to 1908, he says in a speech, eugenics, first object, first object, 
is to check the birth rate of the unfit instead uh. of allowing them to come into being. The second object is the improvement of the race by furthering the productivity of the fit. Oh, so he himself made that journey. Yeah, 100%. He's negative by the time he gets to the end, and he sounds much, much more bitter and much less enlightenment oh, it's the betterment of man, <laughs> you know, than he did mm. when he first started with Hereditary Genius. Mm. I mean, we have to explain some science here, which I always hate doing. Wow, yeah, your, your voice dry. It's like <laughs> when you start talking about having to talk about the gold standard. Yeah. <laughs> Well, because because it's very easy to go, oh, right, you know, Darwin, social Darwinism, yeah. you know, that is the scientific story here. I think it's also important to talk about some of the misconceptions. So when the former journalist and conservative entrepreneur, Toby, <laughs> Toby Young, uh, got into trouble for talking about uh, positive eugenics uh, a few years ago at a, at a conference... And people made loads of jokes about him measuring skulls. And people feel like, oh, that's what eugenicists do. Right. But this is actually sort of the earlier version. Like phrenology is going back really a long way. And then that's sort of replaced by the more scientific yet still bullshit craniometry. Mm -hmm. We're talking about before Darwin, we're talking about mid, mid 19th century. The Italian criminologist Cesar Lombroso thought that you could identify criminals by their head shape because criminality was related to atavism, a regression to like an earlier stage mm. of evolution. Lombroso said that tattoos, for example, were clear evidence of atavism. Mm, surely true. <laughs> I don't have a tattoo, so I don't have a horse in this race. <laughs> And then as the century moved on, this tied into the fear of degeneration, civilizational degeneration, popularized by Max Nordau, who mm. popped up in the early days mm. of Zionism, wrote a, a bestseller called Degeneration. And this is a really popular idea. So in Bram Stoker's Dracula, you get Mina Harker saying, the count is a criminal and of criminal type. Nordau and Lombroso would so classify him and qua criminal, he is of a perfectly formed mind. Oh, Wow. It's so funny, you know, when you read books like that, you, you, you kind of have this yeah. intuitive sense of the bits to skip that you know yeah, yeah, is yeah. like a current reference that you will no longer get. And then suddenly you're like, oh, shit, that's what that means. That's like, exactly it. So that's why, you know, Dracula had a, a weird skull shape. Um, <laughs> one craniometry fan <laughs> responded to critics with, uh, with this brilliant riposte. I've noticed that, in general, those who deny the intellectual importance of the brain's volume have small heads. <laughs> Uh, now, of course, this is um, not true. In the um, oh wow, you shocked me. In the Mismeasure of Man, Stephen Jay Gould's very good book about um, the sort of the history of intelligence and eugenics revisits the data, finds that scientists who weighed brains and measured skulls rigged the results to suit their prejudices. Oh wow, you never have dreamed it. And that this continues throughout the history of eugenics. It's sort of a theory in search of evidence. And then you just kind of mould the data around your prejudices and mm -hmm. to make it seem scientific. So by 1900, you'll be pleased to hear, cranial what tree was on the way out. Mm. Uh, it's considered rather basic because there were new breakthroughs in genetics, which I would try and keep simple. Yeah. Yeah, good, sorry. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. would like that a lot. Well, yeah. but because personally, <laughs> when it comes to the genetics, I am quite simple. <laughs> okay, so the leading theory of inheritance was some Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, and he argued that characteristics acquired by one generation could be inherited by the next. The classic example of this is the idea that at some point in history, giraffes' necks grew longer in order to reach food that was high up. Right. And then they had children, and then their children sort of inherited the lengthened neck. Is that how you got your neck? Okay, this is where my very long <laughs> neck came from. Uh, my, my dad was reaching very high up. <laughs> uh, so in Germany, uh, August Weissmann 
comes up with germplasm theory, the discovery that heredity is in fact limited to sperm and egg cells. And it really doesn't matter what your mum and dad did. Mm. Um, how many books they reached for on yeah, the higher shelves. Right. Yeah. So Weissman was right, but this discovery had political implications because suddenly, if you wanted to, you could see all social problems as heredity, mm. not environmental. So to fix the problems, you fix the people. <laughs> so already in the 1890s, there were people calling for the segregation or sterilization of paupers, criminals, and the unfit. Pretty much the same time, 1900, you have this massively important rediscovery of this essentially forgotten research by a Moravian monk called Gregor Mendel. In the 1860s, he experimented with breeding different strains of pea plant and established that characteristics were inherited through genes. Nobody paid much attention to it while he was alive. Mm. But as soon as it was rediscovered, this tied into germplasm theory. It tied into, I mean, a whole load of political trends as well and gave eugenics a much firmer scientific foundation. We don't have time to go into his story now, but it just suffice to say that Mendel is kind of fascinating. Like just oh, there's yeah. that guy just pottering around with peas. Yeah. And then you're like, you can fast forward from that to the mapping of DNA, yeah. you know, to our current understanding. It all comes from this guy who's basically, at the time that the initial debates on eugenics happening in the Victorian period, yeah. that's when that work is being done, but just no one's no, aware no. of it. It's not until, I mean, it comes out again in, in the spring of 1900, but it's really by about 1915 that the basic yeah. principles of genetics have been decided. So to think about this sort of loosely as like, oh, well, this is what leads us to DNA. It's Mendel's discoveries, it's germplasm, it's just all the ideas of like, well, what, what do our genes do? Yeah. How is it happening? Rather than just the mush of man-woman together, yeah. what comes out? It's like, what is actually the mechanism that is taking place here? Now, the essence of eugenics is biological solutions to social problems. So you look at crime, poverty, disease, and you think, oh, well, can we fix something in people's genes here? Mm. And during the Boer War, the British government realized that many soldiers were physically unfit in one direction, I remember learning about this at school, this led to positive reforms like urban sanitation, slum clearance, the creation of the welfare state under Prime Minister Herbert Asquith. Like, you know, like, like good stuff. good things. Good stuff. It was like imperialist motives, but it was like, we need sort of stronger soldiers and therefore maybe we shouldn't have them living in shit mm. uh, and sick and <laughs> malnourished. But in another, it leads to an obsession with breeding out the weak. Mm. And at the same time, you've got this huge anxiety about birth rates in India and China, the yellow peril genre, this fear of the Chinese was essentially they were having too many babies. So you've got all this racist and imperialist paranoia, which gets all tied up in the science. So social Darwinism essentially was used to justify laissez-faire economics and imperialism. Just a across society, an obsession with the strong and the weak, and something which will annoy you very much. Mm. The illiberal idea that the interests of the nation trump those of the individual. You see that throughout, and we'll, we'll bring it up, that although liberals, just like everyone else, you know, socialists, welfare statists, feminists, you know, lots of other, you know, yeah. things that we would typically sort of admire, uh, get involved with this, there is something fundamentally illiberal about it. Because the unit of analysis is not the individual. It is, they usually call it the race or the species. We should add here, by the way, that the word race mm -mm. in this period 
typically means population. So you know, you could sort of talk about the Hackney race, yes, you know, yes or yes. whatever. Um, and then sometimes, other times, it really does just mean race in a sort of quite similar way to what we know. So it's actually quite hard to do the sort of anatomy of, of just how racist a sentence with the word race in it actually is at a given sure. moment. Um, but they are talking about units of humanity, various kinds, rather than the individual. And of course, once you come to that decision, that's what we're concerned about. You can do all sorts of mucky stuff to the individuals who don't fit your perception of these guys. I think there's something else as well, which is a distrust of the notion of kindness is baked into this oh. motherfucker. It's like anti-charity, yes. anti-philanthropy, because all that these things do is save lives that should not really be saved. Exactly. Exactly. The problem ultimately is the things we do to help one another, you know? to keep people safe, yeah. to keep them alive, right? That's the problem. And then what is it that they look for in their perfect version of, of, of humankind? It's always strength, intelligence, health. It's never compassion you know, mm. or empathy. No one even thinks to say that that would be one of the things you might want to see. Oh, I wonder if that's hereditary as well. It's like no one gave a shit about any of those qualities. Well, it's why you know not all eugenicists were proto-fascists, mm -hmm. but the language of eugenics was fascistic. Yes. These are things that fascists were very interested in as well. It didn't have to end up with Hitler, but it wasn't very surprising that Hitler <laughs> <Right>. liked it. <laughs> but we, we should say like just how popular it was. It was the hot new thing. And I think, you know, the science, the 1890s is, is an incredible period for science in all different directions, you know, in sort of the identification of like bacteria, you know, at the same time as germplasm, science was was very prestigious and it was seen as having the answers to quite a lot of very profound anxieties about where society was heading. So you've got a lot of socialists and liberals into eugenics to some extent, including the Fabians, H.G. Wells, George Bernard Shaw, William Beveridge, later of the much yeah. later of the Beveridge Report, members of the Eugenics Education Society included uh, the Tories, Arthur Balfour, Neville Chamberlain, uh, the socialist intellectual Harold Lasky and John Maynard Keynes. Harold Lasky comes up a lot, doesn't he? He really does. He's yeah. one of, Somebody said, why are you going to do an episode on Shaw? And it was like, I think Shaw, like Lasky and Wells, they just keep popping up. Yeah, but the thing is... They're like character actors. But Wells at least is kind of known. Like, I just feel he's such a strange... Oh, sure, sure. Like, no one ever really brings him up, but it's quite hard to read a book about this period in really disparate areas, whether it's, you know, Ayn Rand or whatever, yeah. where he just constantly pops up. But he's a, he's a, a really important figure on the Labour left, mm. and he, he warned about the future swamping of the better by the worse. Hmm. This, that doesn't seem no, very it's incredible. does it? It's incredible. The shit people end up saying when you D.H. Lawrence, the same. Oh. Right? Just like, oh my God. The stuff, the, the mucky stuff that was going on in the brains of otherwise seemingly quite impressive individuals. Well, Lawrence, I think, was in some way quite genocidal. <laughs> I mean, I think Lawrence was, Lawrence was kind of a madman. In Wells's 1901 book, Anticipations, he just says, look, there are some people who just are, you know, detrimental to civilization. Uh, he says, give them equality is to sink to their level, to protect and cherish them is to be swamped in their fecundity. Oof. But I guess they'll just go, we're going to have to die. Um, and he got told <laughs> off by uh, people, including Arthur Conan Doyle. Oh, my God. Wow. Who were like, this shit is really getting in the way of, of your kind of utopian socialist right. ideals here. And he sort of, 
he backtracked. It's really weird. I've read different books, some of which go that Wells was an ardent eugenicist, and some say that he was a fierce opponent of eugenics, huh. which shows how like people's opinions evolved. Somebody I think who it's it's a much harder to defend is George Bernard Shaw, mm. who's uh, who's played Pygmalion. I recently enjoy very much mm. of the old Vic, <laughs> um, but here he is in 1910 talking about the lethal chamber, which was an invention that was used to gas uh, stray cats and dogs. It says a part of eugenic politics would finally land us in an extensive use of the lethal chamber. A great many people would have to be put out of existence simply because it wastes other people's time to look after them. Mm. This was. Extremely controversial, as you might imagine, and and caused like caused a bit of a backlash against eugenics. Like as soon as you started actually talking about yes. killing people, yes. that was too f far. But preventing them from existing. Mm. So Havelock Ellis, very prominent eugenicist, says he he frames the logic, and it's this logic that we're going to see again and again, uh, quite neatly here. The superficially sympathetic man flings a coin to a beggar. The more deeply sympathetic man builds almshouses for him so that he needs no longer beg. But perhaps the most radically sympathetic of all is the man who arranges that the beggar shall not be born. Oh, fucking hell. So I he's think... phrasing this in very, very like humane <laughs> logic. If we're talking slippery slope, it's like you go from giving a coin to a beggar to sterilizing mm. the beggar, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And that, that sort of really sums up how these people did not think that they were baddies. That was a real ratcheting up of severity in that series of sentences. So in 1904... Galton bequeaths the Eugenics Record Office to the University of London. And this becomes the kind of hub from which lots of the science and the politics then takes place in Britain over the next few years. Um, it becomes the, the Galton Eugenics Laboratory as part of UCL in 1907. UCL, by the way, we're going to add to the list of people and institutions that you typically like doing bad things because that is actually my former university. Really? So, yeah, so once again, I was like, oh, shit, not coming out of this one very well. Sure nobody at my former university did anything bad. <laughs> no, I'm sure they're all fucking saints. <laughs> so the first director is a man called Carl Pearson, and he's the first Galton professor of eugenics at UCL. Hugely talented, just like Galton. They're the father of modern statistics, a kind of titan of science. Mm. Um, also a socialist, also an anti-monarchist, and also a racist and an anti-liberal. Um, so it's a deeply, deeply and explicitly racist worldview that he then starts to pump out. However, once again, and there is sort of credit to him here, I think, he has that same idea as Darwin, that same restraint, which is that the science must be valid. And this is really important because what we'll see in the US is that there was no such restraint there. Yeah. Um, so he says, this is when he gave up the professorship. He says, I'm trying to establish eugenics as an academic study and turn it into propaganda. Quote, only when there are sound scientific reasons upon which to base our judgments and as a result, our opinions as to moral conduct. Even at the present day, there are far too many general impressions drawn from limited or too often wrongly interpreted experience and far too many inadequately demonstrated and too lightly accepted theories for any nation to proceed hastily with unlimited eugenic legislation. 
he is not the kind of hero that you want. He is a real mm. absolute stinking racist. But that sense of restraint, that restrained nature by virtue of still being committed to the validity of the science proves, I think, really, really important as over the course of the 20th century, the science is gradually disproved by genetics. Well, that point about legislation is crucial because eugenics gets really dangerous when it moves from science to policy. Yeah. And we're going to talk a lot more about America. But in Britain, this didn't happen, but almost did due to... Churchill. Churchill. <laughs> As we said in the Churchill episode, surprisingly liberal Home Secretary, but also mad for eugenics. He, he loved it. He, he wrote to Prime Minister Asquith in 1910, the unnatural and increasingly rapid growth of the feeble-minded and insane classes, coupled as it is with a steady restriction among all the thrifty, energetic and superior stocks, constitutes a national and race danger, which is impossible to exaggerate. His solution was the feeble-minded control bill, which included compulsory sterilization. Yeah. It doesn't get anywhere. It does die. It's replaced by the Mental Deficiencies Bill in 1913. There's another one in 1927. And that does get somewhere. It is passed. It gets royal assent. And it is law in this country until 1959. And was also Churchill helped draft that. But there was no sterilization. Um, so, I mean, there's lots of categorization of the supposedly mentally deficient, but all that it adds up to is separation and isolation in institutions. No sterilization, whether voluntary or coercive. And that does not take place in this country. So the question then is why, right? Like, what is it that why? stops it in this country? And I think it's partly, genuinely, it is that there is a real political tradition of individual liberty. And during those debates, you see that come up again and again as one of the arguments against it. And then that question of, the quite practical question of, so hang on, so if the mentally defective cannot, by definition, give consent, how could this thing ever be truly voluntary, given that the people that you're right. talking about, you know, legally are not able to do that? So that that is part of it. But then I think the really important stuff is... Firstly, the extent of the coalitions that emerge, because I mean, there's another attempt in 1933 after the Brock Report, which is basically saying, well, you know, we just need to do this. We just need a sterilization program. And it looks like a royal commission is going to be set up right. and it never comes into existence. What is it that's stopping it? Um, look at this coalition. Catholics who are concerned about sanctity of life, yep. labor groups who are concerned that it's anti-working class, and to a lesser extent, Tory groups who are concerned that it constitutes interference in family life. That's really interesting yeah. because a lot of socialist intellectuals, middle-class intellectuals, yes. were pro-eugenics, but the labor movement, mm. pretty much aware that the working class were going to be the victims of this, was exactly. ardently against. They spotted it right off the bat. They knew exactly who were going to be the people and who indeed always are the people who are targeted by these kinds of programs. The unlikely hero here is the celebrated writer and fierce anti-Semite, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> we did warn you, it's all shades of grey It's all today. very confusing. <laughs> Later wrote a book called Eugenics and Other Evils, and he was the most eloquent mm. and witty. It's lovely. It's a lovely copy. Yeah. It's really gorgeous his, stuff. I mean, this is a couple of lines which just really sum up. One, his wit. The eugenist, the word used at the time, for all I know, would regard the mere existence of Tiny Tim as a sufficient reason for massacring the whole family of Cratchit. <laughs> <laughs> and he specifically called out the progressives who supported it. Mm -hmm. He said, 
and this, I think, applies to many things. Evil always wins through the strength of its splendid dupes, and there has in all ages been a disastrous alliance between abnormal innocence and abnormal sin. Mm. Now, like you say, Chesterton mm. is opposing it for the same reason he's against birth control and abortion. Yeah. And yet he really gets to something about why this is a dangerous idea and why so many well-meaning people can't see it. Mm. And there are lots of reasons why people become opponents of eugenics. In, it, it's un-Islamic, so it doesn't really take off in most Islamic countries. Uh, Stalin sort of is into it, and then he isn't into it for political reasons. Huh. So another really ardent opponent of eugenics in Britain, J.B.S. Haldane, eminent scientist, also a Stalinist. So you've got the Stalinists alongside mm. the Catholics. Um, so there's there's really there's no sense in like absolutely no sense of the the <laughs> the goodies and the baddies here at all. Uh, throughout the history of eugenics, Catholic opposition is absolutely central to stopping it from taking hold, and that's international. So what you'll find is in Catholic countries and Catholic local areas, sterilization programs are unusual, very rare, because it's thought of as a kind of birth control. Basically, yeah. not for the most wonderful reasons on earth, it's just it's a kind of birth control. So France, Quebec, Latin America, you don't see it. Mm. However, the less Catholic a country is and the more Protestant it is, the more likely it is to happen. So Scandinavia, Western Canada, various states in the US, Germany. You know, you look at Switzerland, you find like Catholic cantons yeah. don't do it. Protestant cantons are kind of the, the initiating factories for the sterilization program. It's one of the earliest yeah. sterilization laws exactly. in the world. I think exactly, exactly, yeah. And then in other countries, you know, other ones where c Christian doctrine is just completely irrelevant. So you look at India or you look at Japan, sterilization was often really readily discussed and, and quickly turned into law. Now, what happens here is a pivot. The center of gravity moves away from Britain. So Galton dies in 1911. Not long before the defeat of Churchill's bill. First World Eugenics Conference held in Galton's honour, but Carl Pearson doesn't even turn up. Mm. Um, it's dominated by the Americans. In fact, lots of eugenicists who were unpopular in Britain found an audience in America. Something happens around that. Galton's death, the First World War is another factor, which causes a massive decline in the prestige of eugenics in Britain. It doesn't disappear, but it doesn't go anywhere. Now, America, it's a fucking nightmare. They're, they're, you know, fond though I am of America, there are times when the American version of an idea shaped by American racism just has this monstrous influence on the entire world. One mm. we talked about, uh, drug prohibition. Yeah, yeah. In the War on Drugs episode, it's the American version that causes all the problems. Another is eugenics. One of Galton's admirers was this... Uh, Sour, remote, thin-skinned American zoologist called Charles Davenport. I can, if you think I, if you think I'm being rude about him, just 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 you wait. It sort of does sound a bit like you are, but okay. Much more actively racist than Galton wanted to quote emphasize the value of superior blood and the menace to society of inferior blood. And the U.S. at the turn of the century was neurotic about immigration, and eugenics appeared to give this a scientific justification. Mm. There's a really fascinating book called War Against the Weak by Edwin Black about American eugenics. And he says the real father of eugenics was, of course, Charles Benedict Davenport. Galton was merely the grandfather. 
It was Davenport who twisted Galton's stillborn Victorian vision into self-righteous social biological action. Mm. And as you said earlier, in England, it's about class. Mm. In America, it's about race. And it's much, much more authoritarian. And when we're talking race here, we're not talking the kind of racism that we think of now. It's very early 20th century racism. In his 1911 textbook, Heredity in Relation to Eugenics, he warned that with immigration from Southern Europe, America rapidly become darker in pigmentation, smaller in stature, more mercurial, more attached to music and art, <laughs> more given to crimes of larceny, kidnapping, assault, murder, rape, and sex immorality. So that's his deal. And he is somebody who, who shapes American eugenics. It's supported by people like Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone. Mm. Edgar Rice Burroughs, the creator of Tarzan. It's almost, I don't think that like we've ever had an episode with so many famous names but, in it. And it's quite depressing I, that it's this episode. Could go on. Helen Keller, mm. Jack London, Nikola Tesla. <laughs> oh my God. They're all interested <laughs> to some degree in eugenics. Now, Davenport is quite the go-getter. And he launches the Station for Experimental Evolution in Cold Spring Harbour, Long Island, in 1904. It is the incubator yeah. for some of the worst crimes of the 20th century. And he convinces some of the richest dynasties in America, Carnegie, Rockefeller, Harriman, to fund his researches. And he hires a man called Harry Lochlin, mm. uh, a racist crank, <laughs> to establish the eugenics record office there in 1910. Now, Lochlin is maybe worse than Davenport. <laughs> He'd studied racehorse breeding... And he just applied this to human beings. It says, to purify the breeding stock of the race at all costs is the slogan of eugenics, which is not the way that Galton was framing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He wanted to eliminate what he called the submerged tenth of society. And he broke down what he called the socially inadequate classes into several groups. The feeble-minded, the insane, the criminalistic, the epileptic, the inebriate, the diseased, the blind, the deaf, the deformed, and the dependent, which included orphans. Mm. Ironically, Lochlin himself was epileptic, so he would have had to sterilise himself. <laughs> this is a good moment to mention the fact that Galton never had any children, by the way. You don't usually say that stuff as a thing, but like, there is a level of personal hypocrisy right. in a lot of this stuff that you're like, really? Well, you know. Well, yeah, well, the ultimate example of this is Hitler. Mm. <laughs> Who read a proposed questionnaire to determine whether people should be sterilised for feeble-mindedness. And he wrote, with a comical exclamation mark at the end, mm. at least three quarters of the questions asked would have defeated my own good mother. If this system had been introduced before my birth, I'm pretty sure I should never have been born at all. <laughs> it's like, you would think, therefore, uh, that that was a, a red flag for Hitler. Anyway... Lochlin's job basically sounds like a supervillain's plan. He sent researchers <laughs> out looking for problem families, identified 11 million so-called defectives to sterilise. For starters, he worried that this might not be constitutional. There might be legal problems because, of course, eugenics says all men are not uh, created equal. Lochlin, in fact, drafted the sterilisation law that was later used as a template by the Nazis almost word for word mm. in 1933. Mm -hmm. It was basically just translated into yeah. German yeah. From, from him. You might just think, why would anybody listen to this racist lunatic who thinks humans are like racehorses? Um, and it was because America was like really primed for this. 
As early as the 1890s, there were eugenic marriage laws in some states, attempted sterilization laws. The first one passed in Indiana in 1907, aimed at criminals and the mentally ill. I think I can do you slightly better than that. I've got 1896, Connecticut legislature against marriage of epileptics, imbeciles, mm. drunks, and the feeble-minded. It's then copied by Kansas, New Jersey, Ohio, Michigan. It's clearly like a really long heritage of this kind of legislation. Before, you know, before Davenport and Lachlan even got going, mm. By the mid-1930s, around 30 states had them and a similar number had banned the mentally ill from marrying. During the 20th century, around 70,000 Americans were sterilized under these laws. Yeah, and there yeah. was opposition to it, but I found this film from 1934 called Tomorrow's Children, which attacked sterilization laws. It was banned for being immoral. Wow. My God. The Americans also hijacked intelligence tests, which becomes crucial. To eugenics. They began with a very specific humane agenda with the French psychologist Alfred Binet. And he was commissioned by the Department of Education in France to design a series of tests to determine which pupils had special educational needs. Mm. The 1908 version of his test, which introduced the concept of a mental age, is the foundation for IQ tests to this day. Right. But Binet didn't believe that intelligence was innate. He thought it could be increased by education. It was an entirely benign thing to go, okay, well, which kids need help? In America, the hereditarians mutilate it. So hereditarian is someone who believes that basically all of these characteristics are in your genes and downplays, if not completely ignores, environmental factors. Right. Your upbringing, your sort of education, your family. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're all nature, no nurture, hereditarians, <laughs> basically. <laughs> So it gets translated into English, Binet's test, by a eugenicist that I'll come to later called Henry Goddard, and then developed into the more popular Stanford Binet test by Lewis Terman, who it turns out fiddled the statistics to suit his race and class biases. Um, this test by the 1920s was complex. It had been used um, on, on soldiers, it had been used on immigrants with predictable results. Uh, Terman boasted intelligence tests had become the beacon light of the eugenics movement, mm. which I think is really important when we're talking about IQ now, mm. and particularly in Silicon Valley, which we'll come to in part two. This is the kind of, this is the heritage, the political heritage of the IQ test, something that I used to think was quite harmless. <clears throat> I'm not somebody who really cares about IQ or mine or anybody else's, but I certainly didn't think that it was rooted in these very sort of racist, classist, hereditary ideas. Did you come away from this thinking that it was invalid as a test for the, for the narrow, so for our current narrow oh, yeah. usage? Yeah, no, it shouldn't be. Like, Binet would have said it is used in specific circumstances for children. Right. It was never meant to be used for the general population. So mm -hmm. there's an argument that you just shouldn't use IQ tests at oh, all. Interesting. And the guy who brought IQ tests to America was Henry Goddard, who thought that humans were like Mendel's pea plants, and traits such as criminality or alcoholism could be traced to single inherited genes. So, for example, he thought there was a single gene for feeble-mindedness. Mm. We'll come back later to the long history of people right. thinking that there are single genes for really quite complex phenomenon. Yeah. So he, the feeble-minded were divided into idiots who were mentally incapable of normal life and imbeciles who were one level above. I mean, just kind of excuse, this is the language 
No, it's fine. I mean, to be fair, like I, I wrote a column about Sweller Braverman this morning and I used pretty much every single word right. in the lexicography of this stuff. Goddard invents the word moron to describe people one level above that. Oh. Right? So, starting from the bottom, idiots, imbeciles, morons, they could function in society and therefore, he said, well, they were more likely to spread the feeble-minded gene. So where would you put Sweller Braverman in the... In the file. Would you, I, go, would you go for moron or imbecile I, or idiot? I do. I really would love to distance these words <laughs> from the kind of pseudo-scientific early 20th century because, honestly, the idea that idiot is the most offensive of the lot mm. is, is sort of quite shocking. And, of course, that is, that is no longer the case. Mm. These words have sort of shed their history. But I didn't realise that he'd invented the word moron to target people who were doing perfectly fine in society. Yeah. Not that bright, but they were fine. And he goes, well, they're the dangerous ones <laughs> because they might sleep with mm. scarecrows, normal people and have babies, feeble-minded babies. Ugh. Anyway, he famously explored two branches of the same family, starting with one father, two different mothers from different social classes. Mm. In 1912, he published a book called The Kalakak Family, A Study in the Heredity of Feeble-Mindedness. Kalakak was a pseudonym here. It combined the Greek words for good and bad. Ian, you were kind of fascinated by this. Well, it's just such a fucking madcap adventure. <laughs> you know, so there's this bloke, Martin Kalakak, is a revolutionary war hero. He's going back to his sort of lovely, upstanding Quaker wife when he sleeps with this feeble-minded but very attractive barmaid. And from this moment, you know, we get to find these two sort of the split in this family tree where basically everything that happens on the side of the barmaid is this sort of history of, you know, criminality and disastrous moral behaviour. And everything that happens as a result of sex with the Quaker wife is a result of, you know, just this sort of wonderful, respectable behaviour. So it's this perfect Mendelian in inheritance right. that you can point to as, look, we've proved it now. I mean, the only problem with the story, of course, is that it's all complete bullshit. Well, there's an amazing line in the book <laughs> where he says, we've made rather dogmatic statements and have drawn conclusions that do not seem scientifically warranted by the data. <laughs> We've done this because it seems necessary to make these statements and conclusions for the benefit of the lay reader. Oh, very good. That's Which is an incredible disclaimer. It's like, this is probably bullshit, but we're going to do it anyway. That's like those bits in Matthew Goodwin's book where he'd put like, comma, by the way, none of this is fucking true. Yeah. <laughs> so Goddard was like, he thought the feeble-minded were incurable, so you had to segregate them in asylums or colonies. And this included the epileptic, this is where we get the idea of the, the epileptic colonies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, or sterilization. He, meanwhile, he was also applying intelligence tests to immigrants at, at Ellis Island that were so harsh and included um, things that like an immigrant wouldn't know, like questions about American history and popular culture right, that you right. can possibly expect to know if you just arrived from Poland, uh, and concluded that 80% of them were feeble-minded, mm. which was awfully convenient if you didn't like immigrants. <laughs> And then he was actually told these tests are too harsh and he kind of revised them and he said it's only 40% right. of feeble-minded. So this is again about how the science of intelligence tests in, in a very short space of time is now being used to go, well, we shouldn't let these people in because they will, you know, pollute the gene pool and make everybody less intelligent. Mm. Now, Goddard eventually repudiates uh, negative eugenics um, saying, no, you shouldn't uh, segregate or sterilize these no. people. He says, I think I've gone over to the enemy. Bit late now, mate. <laughs> you really cannot overstate 
how popular this stuff was in America. Eugenics United Socialists, Liberals, Conservatives, it was on school curriculums. John Harvey Kellogg used the profits from his breakfast cereals Mm. and health foods to establish the Race Betterment Foundation. And there's an extraordinary story from 1915 of a Chicago surgeon called Harry Hazelden who refused to save a disabled newborn baby because he said his life is not worth preserving. Went to trial, was acquitted. My God. Became a celebrity, played himself in a movie. Oh, my God. Called The Black Stork about why it's important to let disabled babies die. And said, death is the great and lasting disinfectant. <laughs> Jesus Christ, it's like Judge Death and they made him a Hallmarks film. Yeah. These were not fringe figures, which is not to say that there were not opponents of eugenics right. in America. But the success that they were having in, you know, the bestseller list, in state houses, in hospitals, in the courts, explains why when we get to the Nazis, they took so much from American eugenics. Okay, guys, we're going to be back next week where we're going to see what happens next in the terrifying and frankly fucking dreadful story of eugenics. The impact it has on feminism, on the welfare state, on social democracy, on Nazism in the modern world, and basically more stories of people who frankly really should have fucking known better getting embroiled in some of the most mucky stuff you can possibly imagine. A good time will be had by all. So thank you for listening to part one. You can see all our sources in the show notes. Give us feedback via the Patreon page or on Twitter at Origin Storycast. And if you are a Patreon backer, then you get episodes a week early. We couldn't do all of this research without the support of our Patreon backers. If that's you, thank you. And if it isn't, but you'd like to join up, go to patreon.com slash originstorypod. You'll get bonus episodes, merchandise, early ticket access for live events, and crucially, you'll always get the next episode a week early so if you are listening now and you are not a backer and you want to hear part two do it <laughs> this is dorian ninsky's famous sales chat which yeah. always ends with do it do it <laughs> i used to do uh i used to do door-to-door sales literally i didn't like it much okay we are gonna talk the shit out of that <laughs> as soon as we get away from these microphones we will see you next week guys cheerio Origin Story Season 4 is written and presented by Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky. The lead producer is Anne-Marie Luff, and the audio producer was me, Simon Williams. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Music is by Jade Bailey, and art direction is by James Parrott and Misha Welsh. Origin Story is a Podmasters production.